0: This morning, we are going to do one more sermon in our James series, Born Again Behavior, before we take a break to celebrate Christmas and then, and then New Year's. So uh, we're going to do one more in it this morning. Uh, we're actually going to be wrapping up chapter one. We're going to be looking at a larger uh, section today, and uh, Lord willing that we have enough time to, to cover everything that's here. Um, <clears throat> Just to, by way of context, because we, have, uh, we, we haven't been in this series for a couple of weeks, it's easy for us to forget the context, and we do have uh, guests with us today, and we're so glad you're here. So let me give a little context before we transition into the text. The Messianic community that James actually wrote this letter to was going through uh, some pretty difficult trials. And uh, sadly, uh, many of the believers in this community uh, we're not responding to those trials in a, a way that pleases God, in a way that's good. And um, they didn't actually see their, their trials and the trial they were going through as an opportunity uh, for joy, which is what trials are for us Christians. They didn't see it as that uh, because they failed to understand how God works through trials to bring about steadfastness and lead us to maturity. And that's what we learned about in verses 2 through 4. They also uh, refused or forgot to seek God for wisdom uh, and they actually doubted that he would provide them with the wisdom they needed during that trial. We learned about that in verses five through eight. They also lost sight of their true identities, who they are in Christ as the children of God and they forgot what they have in Christ, all of the spiritual blessings and the inheritance that they have in heaven with him uh, they forgot about that stuff as well we learned about that in verses 9 through 12 and and then last time I was in the pulpit we talked about how they had the audacity in the midst of that trial to blame god for all of their temptations and even sliding into those temptations they basically blamed god for the temptations they were experiencing and 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 giving into so they blamed god for their sins which is insane We learned about that in verses 13 through 18. Um, In the final section of chapter 1, James identifies and corrects another ungodly response to trials within this messianic community. What is it? It is anger. The trial was was, um, leading some of these Christians to become very, very angry with one another, outsiders, and and I would uh, even venture to say with God. Sometimes God uh, is the one that we immediately blame when we start going through something that's really tough and we get angry with him and we question his sovereignty and his will and these sorts of things. And so they had, um, they had anger issues, you know, like George Costanza does. If you've ever seen any Seinfeld episodes, the guy's always yelling. And so they had some anger problems that, that James addresses here. Please take your Bibles and turn James chapter 1. As I said earlier, we're going to look at verses 19 through 27. We don't put a bunch of slides up. We want you actually listening to me and looking at your Bibles and taking notes and multitasking during this time if you can do it. So we'll pick it up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Let's begin at verses 19 and 20. James says next, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, and then listen to what he says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Uh, Before I even get into my commentary here, I'd like to tell you that I was like immediately disqualified after reading this verse. (laughs) I am the opposite of being quick to hear. I am not slow to speak. And heaven forbid, sometimes I'm not slow to anger. Can anyone else? I mean, like you get to this first verse, it's like, should we go any further? We're toast. Now, what I want to do is I want to analyze the words and phrases here. I want to break these things down and even look at some of the original language so we can best understand what James means here. This is so vital for us. Let's take a look at the first phrase. He says, know this, know this. And it comes from uh, a, a Greek verb called oida. And it basically just means to know. He wants them to know something is what he is saying. I want you to know something. In fact, I like the NIV's rendering. Yeah, I think it's a little better than the ESV. And I rarely admit to that because the ESV is the way to go. Uh, but it says, take note of this. That's a really, really good translation. That's a really, really good rendering. Take note of this. James is saying, know this. He's saying, I want you to take note of, of this is what he's saying there. And then the question becomes, what does he want his audience to take note of? He wants them uh, to take note of what he's about to say in the following section, right? Or from this point forward. So he's calling their attention to what he's about to say. Uh, It was as if he had said, understand what I'm about to say to you. Okay, it's critical that they understand this. So that's what he's saying here. Let's go to the next phrase. Um, I love this phrase, my beloved brothers. Um, this is a, such a sweet address here. Um, it, it literally illustrates the deep love that James has for this community, the deep affection that he has for this community of believers. They're, they're not just his brothers in Christ or brothers and sisters in Christ. They are his beloved or beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. This This guy just loves these people, James does. Now, he doesn't love them as much as Jesus does, but he loves these people. He loves this group of believers. Uh, The Greek word for beloved is agapetos, agapetos, or agapetos, and it just means very dear. He's saying, look, guys, you need to pay very close attention, my very dear brothers. You need to pay very close attention to what I'm about to say here. And, and we need to pause just to read a note from, from John MacArthur on this here. It's so great. He says, and this is so true. I've had to learn this through the years. He says, few things can make a teacher's work more effective than genuine love for those being taught. Love can break down barriers, intellectual as well as spiritual ones, that no amount of fact and reason may do. Amen? There's just something about love. When, when people know that you're genuinely concerned because you love them, they tend to listen a little better, don't they? Right? So there's a lesson in here for his, in, in his address for us, the way that we address people, the way that we approach people. If people are, are made to feel and know that they're loved by us, they will listen. They will take the instruction. But, but if, in fact, we're only concerned about the instruction and not really them, then we come off a little brash, right? And then they're not very receptive. And so I think that's huge for us. Uh, we need to, to address our beloved. We need to address our brothers and sisters as beloved, that we actually love them and we're concerned for them. And when we see things, we're, we're not overly consumed with the thing they're doing. We're overly consumed with our love for them. And then we can correct them and speak truth to them. And that's what he does here. And this is what makes James such a phenomenal teacher and preacher. Uh, just an amazing guy. Next phrase, let every person, okay? Let every person. James, James was addressing every person in this Christian community. In other words, no one was excluded. He didn't say some of you or that particular group over there. He's talking to everyone. This is a double barrel shotgun blast to everyone in this Christian community. And by default, To every Christian for all time. He's addressing all of us. Every person who names the name of Christ. Every beloved brother and sister. No one is excluded from from his admonition and his loving correction here. And that includes you and me if we are in Christ. Okay, everyone, let every person. Next phrase, be quick to hear. Uh, This phrase could actually be rendered into English as be a careful listener. That's probably a better way to render it. He says, let every person be a careful listener. This is huge. This is massive. So so if you're like me, you ask the question, what is it that he wants every person here that he's written to and to all of us, what is it that he, he wants us to, to be a careful listener to? Or to whom are we to be a careful listener to? Is he talking about, our, our, our spouses here, our wives, our husbands, uh, to our children? Do we need to be careful listeners to our children, to our bosses, to, to our friends, um, to, the, to the media? Be a careful listener to the media. Good luck, you're headed for insanity, right? <laughs> What's he talking about here? Whom or what does he want us to carefully listen to? I would just say that being a careful listener to your wife, guys, is a pretty good idea. Uh, it's the fact that we aren't, and that's what gets us in a lot of trouble. Um, and, and vice versa, uh, wives to the husbands. We need to be careful listeners with our children and bosses and, and with our friends. Notice how I don't include the media. Uh, and I say that that's all depending on the situation. Sometimes you don't need to be a careful listener to your children. You just need to tell them to go to their room. But that's not what he has in mind here. He's not talking about other people or anyone else. He is telling us and them to be careful careful listeners to Scripture, to the Word of God. This whole text has to do with the Word of God, with the Bible. In fact, in verses 18 through 25, James utilizes four different titles for Scripture, four different titles for the Bible. Um, He calls it the Word of Truth back in verse 18. He calls it the Implanted Word in verse 21. He calls it the Word in verse 22. And he calls it the Perfect Law the law of liberty in verse 25. So we are to be careful listeners to the word, to scripture, to the Bible. Now my paraphrase of, of this portion of verse 19 would be this. He's saying, be a careful listener to scripture, making sure that you pay attention to get the message right. That's what he's saying. And I, and I would just emphasize Um, whenever you hear the Word of God, be a careful listener to it. When you hear a sermon or somebody unpacking it, that's when you need to be a careful listener. You need to make sure that that person is getting the Scripture right, because sometimes they're not, but you need to make sure that you're getting it right as well. And that's, that's basically what he's saying here. Now, we need to keep in mind, though, that his audience was very frazzled when he wrote to them. They were very distracted. Why? Because of the trial they were going through. They were discouraged because of the trial they were going through. They were, they were angry because of the trial they were going through. They were uh, complaining about the trial they were going through. They were even, in a sense, raging against their circumstances. You ever done that, where you're just so upset with the circumstances that are playing out, you're mad at the circumstances? And, and sadly, they were even raging against one another because some within this congregation were mistreating the other Christians, especially the wealthy Christians were mistreating the poor Christians. And so they were were raging against their trial. They were raging against one another. And you can see that in chapter 4, verse 2, where it talks about they wanted to commit physical violence against one another. And there were quarrels and these sorts of things that were breaking out. This was a bad situation. It would be safe to say that these people that James wrote to because of their trial and circumstances, they were not in listening mode, right? They they, they weren't in listening mode. They were in, say, sinful, stupid stuff mode. That's the mode they were in. Why? Because they were ticked. They were upset because of what they were going through. They were upset at their brothers and sisters for the way that people were treating one another. And I tell you, we tend to get a little ticked off too when people mistreat us, don't we? Especially other brothers and sisters in Christ. To me, that's just at another level. I mean, who cares how the world treats you? They're supposed to treat you bad. You know, they're supposed to be upset at you because you love Jesus. But when others who love Jesus mistreat you, ha, 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 vengeance is mine. No, vengeance is the Lord's. It it upsets us. It gets us angry. And would we all be willing to admit, because I want to have some compassion for these people that he wrote to, because I see me in that group, right? (laughs) I want to have self-compassion here. It's not easy to listen when you're mad, is it? In fact, it's darn near impossible. How, how many of us in this room can honestly boast that we are really good, careful listeners when we're fired up? <laughs> Nobody will put their hand up because they don't want to look that stupid. I, I, don't, I go red when I get mad and angry. I, I, I'm not hearing what people are saying. I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm I'm thinking of a way to retaliate. Or I'm thinking of a way to defend whatever pathetic honor I have left. I am not a good listener, nor am I ever a careful listener when I'm angry. And so you can imagine when somebody's reading this aloud to this congregation, and they're all mad. They're like, what did he just say? I couldn't hear him. I'm too ticked. It's hard to be a careful listener. It's hard to be a careful listener to Scripture when you're mad, when you're upset, when you're angry, right? And this is what James is addressing here. Next phrase, slow to speak. Oh, slow to speak. That is a miracle in and of itself. And, and, and really, it's, it's piggybacking off of uh, the be quick to hear phrase, right? He's, he's putting this, these together in tandem. And, and, and think about it. How can we carefully listen to Scripture while we're actually talking or while we're blurting out our anger and pouring forth our anger or whatever it is i don't know about you but that's another impossible feat i can't listen to anyone especially scripture when i'm talking the only thing that i hear when i'm talking is me and pretty much everyone else in the room because i'm just loud i mean i don't even need a microphone right um this is a serious issue for all of us here We we can't carefully listen to Scripture. We can't carefully listen to others or whatever while we are talking. We can't do both at the same time. You can't really listen and talk at the same time. Now, you can talk and you can pause and you can listen and then you can resume talking, right? That's pretty common. Uh, But you can't talk and listen simultaneously. We can do one or the other. And in this context, this Particular phrase also carries the idea of being careful not to be thinking about our own thoughts and ideas while somebody else is trying to express God's word. That's another problem we have, right? Let's say that somebody's talking to us, or more, uh, in more particular to the context here, somebody's preaching the word, and you're sitting there and you've got a mind full of thoughts. And what usually happens is we'll hear somebody, even like me, preach something, and then you'll be sitting there and you won't necessarily fully agree with that right at that moment. And then, then you're gone. You've now checked out and you're not listening to the rest of the sermon. This happens. Somebody will say something that, ooh, I don't know about that. And next thing you know, we're on our phone trying to find, we're Google searching what he just said. We're not even hearing the sermon. We're not even hearing the Word of God. So this, in this context, slow to speak, it, 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 also, it also has to do with be slow to think. Right? Don't, don't just be uh, slow to speak, but be slow to think. Actually carefully listen rather than allow your thoughts to run crazy with what you're actually hearing. This is what he's saying here as well. It has that to do with it here. We cannot carefully hear God's word when our minds are on our own thoughts or when we're, you know, entertaining our own liturgy or our own interpretation of a, you know, particular scripture that the, the minister's unpacking. We're not even hearing him anymore. We're now running off doing our own Bible study during Bible study, right? And I I love it when people are actually thinking when they hear the word, when, when I'm preaching and, you know, they take notes and all that. But man, don't, don't go any further than that because you might miss something that God really wants you to hear in that moment. And I, I'm guilty of it too, especially when it's a a repeating theme. You know, you're listening to a guy preach and he's saying kind of the same thing over and you're like, I'm out. You know, you're playing hangman with the guy next to you. You know, I I get it. I've done it. I've done that. And, And I would think, or I would say that we need to, we need to be keeping silent on the inside as well as on the outside is what James is encouraging us to do here, right? You hear the word preached, Be quiet on the inside and be quiet on the outside, or else you can't carefully listen. And again, his audience needs to be paying close attention to what he's saying, right? They need to really pay attention to what he's saying here. And it's hard for them because they're angry and twisted up. And lastly, this phrase also carries with it that proverbial wisdom which says, speak less. Speak less. Why? Why? Because where many words are spoken, sin is not absent, right? Proverbs 10, 19, that should be a life principle for some of you in this room, especially me. The more you talk, the more likely you are to say something stupid and dishonoring to God and maybe even hurtful to that person. Or you might end up gossiping about somebody else or slandering somebody. The more we talk, I'll tell you what, our tongues, it's like the devil's just there waiting in our flesh. The more we ramble off words, the more likely we are to say something that we will totally regret and end up confessing to the Lord later when somebody calls us out and say, did you realize that you said this? And I'm like, no, I didn't. Well, that's because you're going, Brr, you know, you don't even know what you said. You say so much. The more we talk, the more likely we are to say something that's displeasing to God. This has that uh, this denotes that as well. Now, it, like I said, it might not be foul language that comes out of your mouth if you're speaking a lot, but it could be complaints, and the Scripture tells us, do all things without complaining. So when we complain, that can be sinful. It could be gossip. It could be mischaracterizing someone. Don't say to yourself, well, I talk a lot, and I'm okay because I don't use profanity. Great, wonderful. You don't use expletives like everyone else, or, or when I'm upset, when I use those Christian, Christian replacement words. Right, We all do that, darn," and all that, right? Maybe you don't use those words and you say, "I'm OK, but do you end up talking about somebody else? Do you end up mischaracterizing somebody else? Do you say something that's, that's, that, that wouldn't be pleasing to God about somebody else? So right? It's not just profanity. it's everything. And statistically, now the women are going to be like, "Oh man, let's kill him." Uh, statistically, women speak an average about 20,000 words a day. Ladies. <laughs> Wives. Man, we, men, on average, speak about 7,000. And here's the thing. When we're at work, we get all ours out then. But when we come home do you, you have about 12,000 on reserve. <laughs> and we're like... Right? Statistically speaking, women speak about 20,000 words a day. Now, is that all women? No. But a high percentage. So... So, so, and 7,000, in my opinion, is a lot, especially for some guys who won't even say hi. You know? 7,000 versus 20,000. I, I, I would just say to all of us as, as Christians, we should trim back those numbers, right? Now, if you're going to speak 20,000 words a day and you're just praising Christ, speak 40,000 words a day. But how much of our... Words that we use each day actually point to the gospel or, or bring God glory, right or so much of our words are just just words. How about that football game right you know they 're just words, and we just talk and we just talk and talk. But I say wherever, and the proverb says at ten nineteen it says wherever there 's a lot of words, sin is not going to be absent, so we need to trim that back. We need to be really mindful of what we're saying. That's what James is saying to this audience because they're angry and when things come out of their mouth, it's not 20,000 wholesome words. It's not 7,000 wholesome words. They're saying things they ought not be saying. They're laying into each other. Read the rest of the letter. These people were threatening to kill each other. These are not good words. Uh, When a famous Roman orator was asked by a young man to teach him the art of public speaking, the young man continued an incessant flow of meaningless talk that allowed the great teacher no opportunity to in- interject a word. That guy was just just going and going, and the order's just sitting there going, okay. And when they finally reached the point of discussing a fee, the orator said, young man, to instruct you in oratory, I have to charge you a double fee. And when asked why, he explained, because I will have to teach you two skills. The first, how to hold your tongue. The second, how to use it. Okay? That's a pretty good story. I don't have to just teach you how to talk. I have to teach you how to shut up. That's what he's saying. That's me. Next phrase, slow to anger. And this just, again, another piggyback here. Now, this does not refer to those explosive outbursts of of temper. It's not that. It's not a meltdown, which I have probably about one every five years. I don't know about you, but I'm a slow fuse. But once I erupt, it's like cabinets get tore off the wall. It's not good. I haven't done that for a long time. Thank you, God's mercy and grace. But I used to be like that. But this is not that an eruptive kind of explosive outburst of temper here. It's it's more like an inner deep resentment that kind of smolders. You're angry, you're upset, and it just, it's in you and it kind of festers and kind of just bubbles along and they're like lava. It just stays there. In this context, James seems to be speaking, and this is going to blow your mind, particularly about anger at a truth in God's word. Some truth that somebody proclaims that, that rubs you wrong, that kind of displeases you, that kind of angers you. Maybe, maybe it's confronting your sin or, you know, or something like that. Or maybe, maybe it's the truth that, that's coming from God's word that just, it conflicts with a cherished personal belief or standard or, or your behavior or something of that nature. Now, I think most of us would probably not be willing to admit that we get mad at God's word, but guess what? The people of God have been doing it since day one and sometimes you'll you'll come up to a text and you'll read something and it, and you'll get upset because maybe that text tears down some structure of liturgy that you've, you know, built through the years of religion or it just challenges you on your sin. You know, uh, sometimes you'll see this when you confront somebody that you love, you know they're in sin and they're living in sin and it's it's obvious and you confront them with God's word and what do they do? They get angry at you. Well, you know, you're judging me. Well, actually, what they're getting angry at is the Word of God. They're not getting angry at you. Not not if you treated them like beloved, and you were kind to them. They've got no reason to get angry with you. Now, if you go over and say, hey, you need to stop sinning, you moron. You know, yeah. You can't bring that on yourself. And they do need to stop sinning. But this, just think about it. Have you ever had someone that you've that you've shared God's Word with, and they get all fired up? They get mad? They get into a little tissy fit, get all fired up? It happens. That's a classic example of somebody getting mad at the Word of God. They don't like the fact that it has addressed their sinful behavior lately. You know, that, guy's been, that guy's been sleeping with his girlfriend, and he gets called out by God's Word on fornication. It's a deadly sin. Just, all sin is deadly. All sin leads to death. But all of a sudden, he doesn't want you telling him about that. That's none of your business. Well, I wish it wasn't. But God's Word is very clear on the matter. And next thing you know, He's mad at you. He's ticked at you. He, he hates you now. And you're that judgmental person that's in His life. And He wants to avoid you and all that. But really what He's ticked off at is the Word. That's a classic example of getting mad at the Word. Getting mad at the Word. And, and this happens. And that, and that is part of what James is talking about here. I think that he knows that when his audience, who's all fired up and ticked off at each other and ticked off at outsiders, I think that he knows that when they get their hands on this letter and read it aloud to the whole congregation, what's going to happen? How dare he write us this? Who does he think he is? He doesn't even understand what we're going through. He doesn't even understand that I've had my livelihood taken away from me. What a mo- He's the moron. He is anticipating, as he writes this, he is anticipating an angry response to the very word of God that he's writing through the inspiration and leading of the Holy Spirit. He knows they're going to get mad when they read this. They're already mad. I think James anticipated an angry response to his letter by some of his audience members, not all, but some especially the poor believers who wanted to avenge themselves against the wealthy believers and outsiders who mistreated them. What did they want? They wanted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But then what happens? James swoops in and says, No, that's not how Christians should respond to trials and economic injustices. We are to rejoice. We are to seek God for wisdom. We are to boast in our exaltation and humiliation as the children of God. We are to take responsibility for our temptation and sin. And we do not get angry, especially at the Word of God, when it confronts our sinful behavior. How do you think they were responding right now? How dare he? He does not even, I don't even have enough food to put on my table because of Sam. They don't want to hear it, and he knows it. But you know what? He doesn't relent. He doesn't. Why? Because sin is sin, and sin leads to death, and sin, nothing will kill a church faster than sin. And we can never say to God, well, well, I went through this difficult trial and I went through these temptations and I gave in to sin and it's your fault or it's their fault. We are all personally responsible for our own sin. And we have two options. We either bear that sin and punishment for all eternity or we believe in the one who bore it for us. Amen? There's no way around it. Either Jesus paid for my sin or I'm paying for it. Nobody else is paying for my sin. Even if they were instrumental in helping me do it. They're not paying for it. James knows and he writes to them in such a way that just goes right down the line and corrects every bit of wicked and Unbeliever, unchristian behavior that these people were modeling. He just hammers them, but they are his beloved brothers and sisters. He does la- that's why he hammers them because he loves them. Because he loves them. I want you to notice how the text says slow to anger rather than don't get angry. You notice that? Uh, is he saying that it's okay to get angry? right? Be slow to anger. He didn't say, don't get angry. Now, James did not forbid every form of anger here. There is a type of anger that is, believe it or not, actually pleasing to God. And some would ardently disagree with me on this because, you know, God flies around on a My Little Pony unicorn, with a rainbow behind him and he just, you know, he's just friendly to everyone and doesn't care about sin and it's ridiculous. No, there is a type of anger that is actually pleasing to God. We call it righteous indignation. That is when we get angry over the things that anger God. God isn't a my little pony God. God is a God who has wiped out civilizations because of sin. God is just, and God is righteous, but God is also gracious and merciful. We sang about His mercy. If it weren't for His mercy, we'd all be doomed. There is a type of anger that can please Him, and it's righteous indignation. When we get angry over the things that anger Him, like sin, especially our own sin, we tend to get more angry with others and their sin than we do ourselves. We need to get angry with ourselves more. That is righteous indignation. But when our anger is, and the anger that these people were displaying is nowhere near that, uh, when our anger is personal and self-centered, it's not pleasing to God at all. It's sinful. Why? The next phrase, what does he say? What does he say about man-centered anger here? That kind of anger, what, does not produce the righteousness of God James is actually telling us to be cautious when it comes to anger. When you get angry, you have to assess yourself to figure out what type of anger you're experiencing. Is this selfish, motivated, driven anger, or are you upset over the name of God being blasphemed? What are you angry over? And I would say nine times out of ten, maybe nine and a half, maybe 9.75 times out of ten, we get angry over the injustices that are committed against us. And we let those blasphemies and, and those things slide. We don't say anything about those things. Those things don't even bother us anymore. People are constantly taking the name of the Lord in vain and blaspheming Him and maligning His character. And, and, and you know, those things used to actually bother Christians to where Christians would lovingly speak up. Don't talk about God like that. But today we, talk, we, we speak up when we've been wronged. We have the human-centered anger issue. And that's sinful anger. That's not pleasing anger. Only the anger that angers the Lord is pleasing. But I would say if we're going to get angry, it needs to be over the things that anger God. But even then, we have to be careful because we have flesh. Next thing you know, that kind of anger becomes the wrong kind of anger. And, And quite frankly, what should our anger, if we get angry over something that angers God, what should that produce in us? Just a bitter hatred toward others? No! Compassion for others intercessory prayer for others what did Jesus say on the cross as he's dying and bleeding bleeding out just before he breathes his last breath he could have been so angry father forgive them for they know not what they do so the anger that we experience, if it's a righteous anger, we need to know how to manage that and deal with it. And I say it should drive us to our knees that we would pray for those who are blaspheming or whatever it is. Vengeance is the Lord's, it's not ours. James's big point, I think, is this. Since God has caused us to be born again through His Word, right? And, and since we are now His firstfruits, we learn about that in verse 18. That's the context. Since that has happened, God has done that for us. We are his first fruits. We are his children. We must now live in accordance with our new nature as God's children by being quick to hear scripture, slow to speak, narrow down those words, ladies and gentlemen, slow to anger, but any anger that comes about must be righteous if at all, but be careful with it. Why? Because man-centered anger does not produce the righteousness of God. That's what James is telling these people to do. And of course, they're doing the exact opposite. And that's why he's saying this to them. In the next line, James describes what man-centered anger produces. Look at verse 21 with me. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What does... Man-centered anger produced, according to verse 21, righteousness? No, he just told us in the previous section it doesn't produce righteousness. It produces what? Filthiness and rampant wickedness is what he says here. Uh, The Greek word for filthiness is ruparia, which means moral uncleanness. Uh, The Greek words for rampant wickedness are periseia, kukaya which together mean an abundance of malice. So what does man-centered anger produce? Moral uncleanness and an abundance of malice. Well, what is malice? Malice is the intent or intention to do evil. Beat somebody up. That's what they wanted to do in chapter 4, verse (laughs) 2. Right? That's malice. The intention to do evil. Notice the imperative at the beginning of verse 21. Look at that. This is amazing. This is a command. He says, therefore put away all. After describing the utter uselessness of man-centered anger in the previous verse, James now commands his audience to rid themselves of all sinful behavior associated with it. What? Moral uncleanness and malice, the intention to do evil. He's basically hitting them with a double barrel again. He's telling them, look, put away with the anger. Be slow to anger. If you have anger, let it be righteous indignation, but nothing else. But put away with that anger because your anger is unrighteous. And put away with all that is associated with it. The filthiness of your behavior, the filthiness of your attitude, the moral corruptness of what you're doing. And, and that malice, that desire for vengeance. This is not an eye for an eye moment. They ought to be thankful that God didn't treat them in that way. Instead of, instead of getting justice, what did they receive from him? Mercy. But they've forgotten about all of that because they were code red. Blinded by their anger. Therefore, put away all. He says all of it. All of that wicked behavior associated with this. Put it all away. But this isn't the only thing he commanded them to do here. In the second half of the verse, he told them to receive. He actually commands them to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save their souls. See, every born-again believer possesses a basic, implanted inner knowledge of the gospel. Every true believer has that. It's, it's in their spiritual DNA. We know that Christ lived for our righteousness. This is embedded. We know that he lived for our righteousness. We know that he, he died to pay for our sins. We know that he was buried. We know that he rose from the grave three days later. Why? So that we could be cleansed and forgiven and reconciled to god this is a these common truths these common gospel truths are they're 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 embedded in our spiritual dna we understand this If if you meet someone who professes christ and they can't even articulate to you what christ did for us well he died on a cross for us he was buried if they can't articulate that probably not a christian that's that's basic that's christianity 101 man That's that's embedded in us. We understand how we're saved and forgiven and all this. That is this implanted knowledge that we have here. The Holy Spirit has embedded this information, these basic truths, into our spiritual DNA as the children of God. And guess what? We're never going to forget these basic truths. We may not be able to comprehend and understand every facet of them, but we got the basics down, it's there. What James is basically telling them to do is to remember how they were forgiven and saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is saying, don't get angry and give yourselves over to all that is associated with with that human-centered anger, that moral uncleanness and malice. Remember the gospel. Receive it afresh and forgive others as you have been forgiven. This is what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. Reflect back on how you were forgiven by grace and mercy. Remember what's been done for you, it's right there in you. You don't even have, to, if you're a true believer, you don't even have to open a Bible to find it. It's there through the Holy Spirit. There's, there's nothing on earth that will quell or quench your anger than to be brought into a a kind of sobriety where you're reflecting on your own wickedness and the grace that saved you and the forgiveness that you received in Christ. Nothing kills that anger toward others than a realization of those things on on the face of the earth. I used to tell people, students, you know, go around with a mirror. You already have them in your purses, young ladies. And when you feel God leading you to correct a brother or sister in the Lord, you know, I used to tell students this, you pull out that mirror and you hold it up just to the side of your face. That way, when you're correcting that person, you can still see yourself. Because you're no better. And you continue to struggle with sin. These people need this big reminder. They're so outraged and angry and ticked and they've completely forgotten how their sin angered a holy God and how God was ticked at them and how by his mercy he reached down out of heaven and saved them how could they not forgive others how could we not forgive others when we have been forgiven of so much. I think that's what he's saying. Now let's move to verses 22 through 25. This is where the rubber really meets the road. He says this, "...but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror." For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. <laughs> I tend to do that now as I get older. Just because of the wrinkles. And he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Remember that's code for scripture. And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Ah. Oh. A doer is is someone who is not only committed to hearing and learning God's word, but also faithful and, conti- and and also displays faithfulness to the word and a continual obedience to the word. That's a doer. The Greek word for hearers is akrotase, and I want to talk about this a little bit. It describes those who sat passively in an audience and listened to a singer or a speaker. Today, it could be used to describe those who audit a college class. You know, there's people that actually do this. They'll pay to go through the class, but they don't have to do any of the work or any of the reading assignment. They don't have to submit any of that work. They just sit through the class and they learn what they can from the instructor, from the teacher, but they don't get tested or any of that. But guess what? They also don't get credit for the class. That's an audit. And this word, this Greek word, describes that kind of person, one who just kind of sits in and listens, but doesn't have to do. MacArthur said, tragically, most churches today have many auditors Members who willingly expose themselves to the teaching and preaching of the word, but have no desire for that knowledge to alter their day-to-day lives. They take advantage of the privilege of hearing God's word, but have no desire for obeying it. Is that us? Is that you? You just, you just keep coming to church over and over, and you hear the Word of God, and boy, you like what you're hearing. You, you maybe take a few notes, but you walk out of here really with no intention of doing it. That's an auditor. And I think MacArthur's right. In fact, I think there are more auditors in the church today than actual doers. People are just not interested in actually living out the precepts of Scripture which is an indicator that that person has not been made new because our highest joy as true believers is to obey. We want to obey. We desire to obey even when it's difficult, even when we're angry and we're being told, don't be angry. Obedience is key. When a a true Christian hears God's word, there is an affection for its truth And a desire in his or her heart to obey it. True Christians agree with a psalmist who wrote, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, verse 97 and verse 11. That is the heart cry of a true believer. And this idea of, of auditing sermons is ridiculous. And it happens day in and day out, every Sunday, sometimes twice, and sometimes on Saturday night. Verse 23 through 25, James gave an illustration. A person who looks at God's word but does not apply the truths he has discovered is like someone who immediately forgets what he has just seen in a mirror. <laughs> You know, mirrors back in those days weren't like the mirrors we have today. It was kind of hard to get a good image out of a a mirror back then. It was, you know, beat bronze and polished bronze and stuff. But, I mean, you could get it pretty good if you held it into the light properly. But that's what it's like here. He says, you know, somebody who listens to God's Word doesn't obey. It's like someone who looks in a mirror and forgets what they look like. You know, in God's Word, this person sees his sin. Right, God's word exposes, it's like a mirror, it exposes our sin, but it also reveals God's gracious provision in Christ as our only remedy. And yet this person who, who is has presented with this life-saving information, they hear it week in and week out, yet they go on their way as if they were never even exposed to these truths. This happens day in and day out, every week. And it's Utterly tragic. It's so sad. It's so sad. It's so sad because heaven and hell are in the balance here. They're there. Oh, whatever. That's your truth. I I like that part, but I don't like the rest. Audit. Audit. And yet... James adds the other side of the coin here, but the man in his illustration, he says, but the man who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, again, that's Scripture, that's the Word of God, that's the 66-book Bible. And that guy who, who looks into the Word and perseveres, why? Because he's not just a hearer, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed, he will be blessed. In other words, the one who looks and walks away and forgets won't be blessed. But the one who looks and remembers and applies and lives out will be blessed. Blessed by what or by whom? By God. There is a link between obedience and blessing. This link is firmly established in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26-28, through 28, God said this so plainly. I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. (laughs) If you obey my word, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you won't. That's what he says. At one point... During Jesus' ministry, a a woman in the crowd just, I don't know what was going on with her, but she got really, really excited about what Jesus was doing or saying. And she kind of blurts out and tries to praise Mary, right? She tries to praise Mary for giving birth to Jesus and for nursing Jesus. She's listening to Jesus preach, and that's the best she can do. Thank God for your mother. Well, that sounds like an entire religion that we have before us today, doesn't it? All the praise goes to her. And what did Jesus do? We're always asking, what did Jesus do? Such a stupid cliché. What did he do? He corrected her. He declared, "No, no. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it." Luke 11:27 through 28. "Blessed rather are those who hear the word." Stop. No. And do the Word. It's not just hearing. It's hearing and doing according to our Lord. It's hearing and doing according to God the Father in the Old Testament. It is essential that we understand that hearers of God's Word will not be blessed by God. Only hearers and doers of God's Word shall be blessed by God. This is a fundamental biblical truth. It is. And here's really the bottom line. True Christians, they love God's word. And as I said, their highest joy is to understand and keep it and thereby please their Lord, the Lord Jesus. That's our heart if we're truly in Christ. In the last two lines, James added a very, very strong warning, uh, just a, a, a paralyzing warning here. Verses 26 and 27, he says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, people are always, today in the church, always ranting and raving against, uh, raging against religion. All religion is bad. All religion is bad. All religion is bad. There's a good form of it right here, hello. We need to get rid of all religion. We don't want to, we're not religious, we're in a relationship with Jesus. Newsflash: if you have a set of core beliefs and you worship a deity, you're in a religion. Christianity is a religion. But there are many aspects of this religion that are not pleasing to God because they have fully deviated from the Word of God. James just comes right out and says, if a person thinks he or she is religious, because they do a lot of religious activities is what he's saying. You know, because that's what the idea here is. And these people were very religious, right? If, 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 if you think you're religious because you do a lot of religious activities, what, like attend church? Yeah, I do that pretty regular. Recite liturgies, you know, whatever. There's a lot of traditions that do that. Well, I sing worship songs. You know, I give tithes and offerings. In fact, i have never given a tithe. I just give a lot of offerings. I take sermon notes when the sermon is preached. I like to pray a lot, etc., etc. These are religious activities. If a person thinks they're religious because they do all of these things, and yet they also spew anger and and salty language and profanity and innuendo and coarse joking and gossip and slander and other filth from their lips, they are self-deceived. And their religion is, according to James, utterly worthless. i tell you what, that is one of the great tricks of the devil today is to keep people busy with religious things, externals, while yet being completely and utterly lost on the inside. And the tongue is the great revealer of who we actually are on the inside. Nothing reveals who you truly are more than your tongue, what you say, because it is from the heart that man speaks. And and the idea here is you've got people in this congregation that are going through all these religious motions, and yet what they're saying isn't lining up. And James is saying, your religion is worthless. You are deceived. You are self-deceived. We somehow think that all the things that we do externally are pleasing to God while being far from Him on the inside. What we say reflects who we are on the inside. And if our heart has been made new by the word of truth, this is what he talked about in verse 18, we will speak out of this new heart and our vocabulary vocabulary will be vastly different from before. It will be different. It won't be perfect because no sinner saved by grace is able to perfectly control his or her tongue, right? Chapter 3, verse 8. But our language, our vocabulary will be different. And it will, over time, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will become more and more pleasing to our God. That's James's point. When I first got saved, this is one of the first things that I noticed about myself. That I used to have a sailor's mouth. My goodness, and by the way, the Navy just beat the Army you saw that the other day. I don't know why I said that. I don't even watch that. <laughs> That's important. Eternal consequences there. But this is one of the first things that I noticed about myself is that that desire for profanity kind of fell off. Doesn't mean that I haven't said some things that I regret and have had to confess since then. I have. But boy, the frequency is way different. I mean, we all know how people talk today right every other word is an f-bomb it's amazing to me how narrow people's vocabulary is today i think it's worse than ever but then again i'll go watch an old john hughes 80s movie and i'm like "Ooh, they were bad back then too which means i was bad but this is one of the first things that you notice when your heart has been made new those things begin to fall to the wayside they do I remember, I've told you this before, I went through my DVD collection and just cleaned it out. A Christian man did not need pulp fiction in his house. Still doesn't. I just didn't want that around anymore. Because I know it wasn't pleasing to God and it certainly wasn't helpful to me. And at that point on, you don't do that perfectly, but that becomes part of the warfare that you're fighting against that kind of stuff and that you want to rid that stuff. You want to keep, as Mary and I have talked about many times before, you want to keep those things that are evil from your eyes and from your ears and, because the more that you're subjected to that stuff, the, the more likely it is to, be, to have an impact on you and you'll see it begin to come out of you. And, and that should not be there in us. I think the main point that james is pushing here is that our speech is a better indicator of an inward change than religious activities i think that's what he's trying to say and if our speech is is good and pleasing to god it indicates a transformed heart if it is bad and displeasing to god it indicates that our hearts have not yet been transformed or that something else is going on there. Religious activities may also indicate inward transformation, but not like our tongues. They won't do it like our tongues. Our tongues really reveal what's going on on in the inside of us. And if our tongues are still running loose, our religious activities are basically worthless, is what James says. Why? Because it's obvious that those religious activities like that's bad speech, they're just not coming from a transformed heart. You know, the Pharisees were some of the most religious people on the face of the earth during Jesus' day. I mean, they went to a synagogue. They were there all day, every day. They went to the temple, they were there there all day, every day as well. I mean, they tithed, and when I say tithe, they gave at least ten percent of their incomes. They were just crazy. They preached the word of God in and out of these synagogues and all over the place. They promoted sound doctrine, um, but you know, they also scammed little old ladies out of their properties, and they also cursed and blasphemed Christ endlessly with their tongues. By all appearances, they seemed to be truly religious, but when they spoke, they revealed their true selves and the utter worthlessness of their religion. Religion that doesn't burst forth from a transformed heart, is worthless. And yet, religion that bursts forth from a transformed heart is true and right. According to verse 27, the kind of religion that is pure and undefiled before God is twofold. First, it has to do with visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. This is basically what James is saying is, is that true religion, the religion that is actually pleasing to God, has to do with caring for the neediest people. And we're wrapping up here. In the first century, there there was no welfare programs. There, there were no life insurance policies or any of the things that we have access to today. And Employers would rarely, if ever, hire orphans and widows so that they could make an income. Why? Because they were either too young or too old to perform you know, common labor. Ancient societies basically abandoned their orphans and widows, but the early church did what it could to care for them, especially its own orphans and widows. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we learn that the early church had a daily distribution ministry for widows. This ministry had seven overseeing deacons. One of them was named Stephen, who's one of my favorite historical people. The phrase to visit means much more than to pop by and say hi, pop by an orphanage. Hi, orphans! See you later. Hi, widows. Can I clean your windows? That's weird. It means more than popping by and saying hi. Casual encounters. It means more than that. Uh, In Greek, it is uh, episkeptomai, which means to exercise oversight on one's behalf. And to help them with whatever they need. What does it mean? It means to look out for them and to look over them. Because nobody else will do it. And since orphans and widows have literally no way to reciprocate. No way to pay you back. Caring for them reveals true sacrificial love. You can't get anything in return you know what I think James is trying to do here? I think he's trying to give these people some perspective. Oh, you've got it so bad. You've been ripped off. You're upset. You're angry. You're persecuted. I get it. Years earlier, persecution blew this church apart. In fact, some of you were members of my church. James was so accustomed with persecution. He understood it. And I think what he's saying is I know things are hard. I know things are tough. But guess what? There's people out there that have it worse than you. And they're called orphans and they're called widows. They are destitute, they have nothing. That's perspective. Whenever I go through a trial, I'm reminded of people who are going through much worse trials. And that brings about a level of humility in me and thankfulness to God and prayer for those who are going through worse things. You can always find somebody in the body of Christ who has it worse than you. And we never rejoice in that. But we say, you're right, things aren't as bad as they could be. And even if they become that way, I'll cling to you. But James is saying, get your eyes and minds off yourselves. Practice true religion. Care for those who cannot care for themselves. wouldn't surprise me a bit if there were some orphans and widows in this messianic community that were right there needing to be loved, needing to be fed, needing to be clothed. James is giving them perspective. And second and last, pure and undefiled religion before God is keeping oneself unstained from the world. You know, this has to do with maintaining personal purity. Christians do not belong to this world. We belong to Christ, and our lifestyles should reflect His purity. Our speech should reflect His purity, our actions. We are in the world, but not of the world. And Like Timothy, we must also set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In purity. The world is watching us, When it watches you, what does it see? The world is listening to us. When you speak, what does it hear? It should be responding and saying of us, Boy, that person just doesn't fit in. Something is wrong with that guy. Something is wrong with that gal. They don't fit in. I've listened to him speak, and he doesn't say what we say. I've watched how he acts. He doesn't act like we act. May this simple truth of of purity be true of all of us who name the name of Christ. So in closing, we have heard the word this morning, haven't we? What is our next step? Our next step is to do the Word. It's that simple. Brothers and sisters, we are not auditors. We are the people of God, and we must put into practice what we've heard and learned. And if we put what we've heard and learned into practice, what will happen? We will be blessed by God. It's that simple.